program. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. We're in the midst of a loneliness crisis, we're told. In fact, not only is it American loneliness crisis, it is a global loneliness crisis. At least as we look at an article that came out in the Los Angeles Times, we're in the midst of this global loneliness crisis that struck long before social distancing entered our vernacular and our smiles were occluded by masks, says the author. One in five millennials in the U.S. say they have no friends. 60% of residents in U.S. nursing homes have no visitors. In Japan, people older than age 65 routinely commit crimes so that they can avoid social isolation by living in jail, believe it or not. The problem is so acute that in the United Kingdom, the U.K., they appointed its first minister of loneliness in 2018, and according to this author, this is the loneliest century humankind has ever known. But it didn't emerge overnight. Our smartphones and particularly social media have played an integral role, and so have large-scale migrations to the cities. In, a much, in much of the world, people are less likely to attend a house of worship, belong to a parent-teacher association or trade union, or live with others than in the past. We also have become more individualistic. The evolution of pop lyrics since the 1970s bear this out with words such as we and us being steadily replaced by those like I and me. An I-focused world inevitably is a lonelier one, and we find it even in our Christian worship music. But it long preceded the 1970s. In fact, the refrain of one of the songs that came from the Beatles in the 1960s comes to my attention, and we hear it now. There it is, Eleanor Rigby. I see all the lonely people. Do you remember that one? I wasn't exactly a Beatles fan, but I do remember the song, in fact, so much so that I spent some time trying to locate it out of the 1960s. The Beatles caught something there that we were entering into a period of profound loneliness. An I-focused world. Not we, but I and me. It's interesting that a number of years ago, as I was exiting the Chicago O'Hare Airport, I came across a 60-foot billboard along the side of the freeway, and all it said was, me, me, me. It's all about me. And now we have selfies. They're not called we-ees, they're called selfies. <laughs> it's all about me. And the statistics concerning loneliness seem to know no end. 
In the United States, 15% of men say they have no close friends, an increase of more than 10 percentage points since the 19, since 1990. In the Netherlands, almost a third of adults admitted to being lonely. Three in five Brits between the ages of 18 and 34 say they feel lonely. And in the workplace, 40% of office workers globally say they feel lonely. And that was before all began working from home. What are we to do with this? How are we to respond to this? That's our focus here on Viewpoint today. And our viewpoint concerning loneliness uh, is also reflecting our viewpoint concerning community. It's also reflecting our viewpoint concerning a very important biblical subject called hospitality. And today on Viewpoint, we're going to tie all of these together and find that there really are answers to that which seems to be plaguing America. I remember back about uh, 20 years ago, uh, Kirby Anderson joined us on Viewpoint concerning his book, uh, Signs of Hope and Signs of Deep Trouble, and he talked about this crisis of loneliness that he saw creeping into America. And now from the Los Angeles Times, a feature article We're in the midst of a global loneliness crisis, and here's how we can end it. But when I read the answers to how to end it, I realized these are very superficial answers. These are institutional answers. These are political answers, but they're not real answers, because the real problem is the lack of community. The real problem is that our hearts are not connected with one another. And interestingly, our mental health is at stake, but it's not the only thing at stake. Loneliness is associated with increased rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide. Loneliness loneliness demands our physical health as well. Our bodies go into a state of high alert when we are lonely, and our heart rate and blood pressure go up. Loneliness is worse for us, they say, than not exercising or being obese. In fact, loneliness is said to be as detrimental to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So, the author of this special article in the Los Angeles Times says, we are inadvertently built, we have inadvertently built a lonely world, but it doesn't have to remain that way. I agree. It doesn't have to remain that way, but it will. It will unless and until we do something about it. Well, apparently the FBI has an answer to this. The FBI is receiving criticism for a tweet it posted a couple of weeks ago that suggests that Americans should monitor family members and peers for signs of, quote, mobilization to violence, unquote, and to report, quote, suspicious behaviors, unquote, within families? How is this supposed to help our loneliness crisis? Richard Grinnell, a former acting director of National Intelligence, wrote that the FBI's tweet is outrageous. He called it sinister snitching. And a number of Republican lawmakers have also criticized the tweet, saying the FBI is encouraging Americans' families' members to spy on one another. Is that going to help the loneliness crisis? 
or accentuate it. In fact, the way government is moving today is accentuating the loneliness crisis, not helping it. And the reality is, friends, we are facing a time of what is called crowded loneliness. As the population is increasing, loneliness is increasing as well. And it was back in the, oh, 1960s, I believe it was, that a man came out, I think his name was Reisner, came out with a book called Crowded Loneliness. We want to talk about that crowded loneliness and what to do about it here on Viewpoint Today. Maybe you resemble that remark. Maybe you're finding yourselves lonely. Lonely in the crowd. We can do something about it. In fact, God says we must. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chrismar, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and indeed, we are told we are alone in a crowd. Crowded loneliness. The question is, is there help? Is there hope for crowded loneliness? Indeed, there is. And it begins with, well, shall we say, the book of Genesis, chapter 2. God had made man in his image. And then he discovered, well, didn't discover because he was God, But he had created the animals with all of their pairs and so on so that they could procreate and have communion and to not be lonely. Then he discovered and looked and saw that the man was lonely. And he said, it is not good for man to be alone. So he created a woman out of the man. And they were married. God married them. And he said, what I have put together, man must not put asunder. And that was the beginning of the remedy to loneliness. But God wasn't satisfied just with the man and the woman. Because he walked with that man and he walked with that woman in the garden. Therefore, there was no loneliness. It was the man, it was the woman, and it was God. We have a song that we used to sing in our churches. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That was an expression of a couple not being lonely because they were together and together with the Lord. When you and I are truly together with the Lord and with one another, there is no loneliness. But loneliness comes in when we're separated 
in that relationship, either from one another or from God or all three. And it's interesting because the Bible talks about something called hospitality. Hospitality is something that God has given to humankind to defeat loneliness. In fact, there was a time when hospitality was the heart of the American home. I think you'd agree. There was a time when hearts and homes that practice hospitality were welding families into community with kind of a like an invisible glue that let people know that they belonged and were welcome and were accepted. And there was a time about 20 centuries ago when one of the hallmarks of the church was, behold, how they love one another. In fact, in the book of Acts chapter 2, it says they broke bread from house to house with gladness and singleness of heart, and the church exploded. But then something dramatic has happened since those times. In fact, you could call them palpable changes that have taken place in our time. Even in just one generation or two generations and so widespread is this problem that on May 22nd, the year 2000, Christianity Today asked the headline question, whatever happened to hospitality? Whatever happened to hospitality? The writer said, for Christians, a lack of hospitality towards strangers has crept into our churches and was lamenting that dozens of evangelical churches, few have shown hospitality beyond just a simple greeting of hello. So, whatever happened to hospitality? That's the question that hovers over our conversation here today on Viewpoint, and we're not going to leave it just hovering. We're going to actually provide some direction here because on Viewpoint, we're confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective. Believe it or not, even pastors now have few friends, maybe especially pastors. Only 30% of them will admit having any friends at all. So, many folk are experiencing what one sociologist called crowded loneliness, surrounded by people but lost in the crowd. And it's, it's like an absence of heart connectedness, a deep feeling that nobody knows my name or even cares. And that's true for men and women. And the collective effect of this is the collapse of all sense of community. And it's a conclusion now validated almost universally by secular and spiritual sociological observers. And so, is there an answer? I believe that there is an answer. Let me uh, just share a little story. It was about uh, 30 years ago, no, 35 years ago, we had moved to a new location in Southern California. I was practicing law. And uh, this was just a small community, a one-street, two-block community, maybe 30 houses in those two blocks. And so when we moved in, we decided that we needed to meet our neighbors, and we wanted to do something to help assist our neighbors in coming together. So in true lawyer-like fashion, 
I prepared a subpoena. And one Sunday afternoon, I walked door to door and served that subpoena on every household in those two blocks. The purpose of the subpoena was to welcome and invite those people to our home on the next Sunday afternoon just to have tea, to enjoy some cookies, and so on. In other words, a time of fellowship at our home. They didn't know us from Adam or Eve. And so the day arrived. The day arrived and we wondered what kind of response we will have to this invitation, to a subpoena that had been served lawyer-like fashion on our neighbors. Well, it was fascinating. We began to see people, couples, streaming in from both ends of the street. It was an amazing thing to see. One by one, and then groups began to come to our home. And by the time we were through, it seemed that there were at least 30 people that have shown up. At least 30, and probably more than that. We didn't bother to count them because it was such an amazing response. And here's what happened. Actually, there were 52 responses. 52 responses. And they insisted upon crowding into our dining room that was only 13 by 15 feet. And in it was a small dining room table, all decked with uh, wonderful cookies and so on, treats. But they insisted on crowding into that little dining room. Why? Because they were reveling in a decade-long sought opportunity for collective fellowship. In fact, one couple reported that after 17 years, they had finally met their neighbors as they walked to our home, even though they lived directly across the street from each other, less than 200 feet away. So these were not homes that were separated by acres. Each one of these homes was on a lot, for the most part, a half an acre or less. But you know what? Some of those same patterns are persisting in our congregations. In fact, in one congregation that we attended for a number of months, the worship service was interrupted weekly for a time of welcoming and greeting. Supposedly, it was a time of hospitality. But almost without exception, what we noticed was that as someone would reach out to shake our hand, they would look at someone else. So the greetings were largely empty. There wasn't any really genuine hospitality that was extended. It was a pretense. And interestingly, the races were mixed numerically but they didn't mix relationally. That was the other thing we noticed. And the only way they mixed was in the music. So there was something missing that could pour life into that empty cup of fellowship. So my wife and I, who had written a book on hospitality called The Power of Hospitality, and had been teaching on this for years, starting in Southern California, invited the pastor and his wife for dinner. 
and we complimented him on his message and ministry and expressed our heart's concern over the deficiency in hospitality that we thought could make a huge difference in the congregation. So the next Sunday, the pastor addressed the congregation and called them to hospitality as best he could and inquiring as to the experience of his members in opening their homes to one another. Would you like to know what happened? Well, here's what happened. It was shocking to the pastor and people alike. One by one, people stood and they lamented that no one had ever invited them to their home. White folk were troubled that they had never been in the homes of their black brothers and sisters. And black folk complained they had never been invited to break bread in a white home. So they were in covenant with God, but they weren't in covenant with one another. They were strangers in a large congregation with little fellowship, strangers even in the commonwealth of faith. You know what? In reality, we're all strangers here. Did you know that? In reality, we're all strangers here. But that's not God's intent. And as we see the day of the Lord returning, uh, coming closer and closer, the Bible says we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves as some is, but we should the more so gather together. One of the reasons for that is we're going to desperately need that fellowship because loneliness will kill you. Loneliness is very damaging in many respects to our health, to our spiritual life, even to God's call for his kingdom. His kingdom is about people, people united with one another in Christ. But we can be united in Christ and not united together. And that is breaking the covenant relationship. So we want to talk of the balance of the program today, how we can heal this problem, what we can do about it, what you can do about it. And there are real answers, and they don't involve the government. They involve whether or not we truly want to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, before we go further, I want to make available to you our book, The Power of Hospitality. The power of hospitality. An open heart, open hand, and open home will change your world. An open heart and an open hand and an open home will change your world. And by the way, this is for men and women. This isn't teacup stuff. This is the real thing. This is the kingdom of God being manifest in the flesh in real time in our time. Otherwise, we'll all be strangers here. Now, we're going to make the book available to you. It is a $16 book, yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or you can write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 2 Three two five five. You're writing a check at five dollars for postage and handling, and I do not think you're going to be disappointed. This is for men and women. Let me just say, men, that God actually killed a man 
because he refused to give himself to hospitality. God actually killed a man because he refused to give himself to hospitality. Not only did he kill a man, but he decreed judgment on a whole people group because they refused to receive the children of Israel with an open heart, an open hand, as they came out of Egypt. This is a big deal to God, a very big deal indeed, if indeed we're on the near edge of the second coming, because the Apostle Peter said the end of all things is at hand, therefore use hospitality. What in the world does that mean? We'll have to find out. Stay tuned. This is Viewpoint. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a for pastors only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. We're all strangers here. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wrote to the children of Israel in chapter 10, he says, The Lord your God loves the stranger, therefore love ye the stranger. Love ye the stranger. So hospitality means to reach to strangers. And the reality is, in many respects, we're all strangers here. In fact, The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Abraham himself was a stranger, an alien and a stranger. The reality is that you and I are called to be in the world, but not of it. So as professing Christians, we are, by nature of our commitment to Christ, strangers, aliens in the world. On the other hand, we're also called to be ambassadors. In other words, we're called to be the ones who extend an invitation, God's invitation, into his home through our home. I want you to get the significance of this because this is big. This is really big. Now, you need to understand that when my wife and I were first married 56 years ago, She wanted a husband who had a heart of hospitality. She figured because I had grown up in a pastor's home and because I had majored in psychology and so on that I was a true hospitable catch. Nothing could have been further from the truth. I didn't have a clue. Not even a clue, and she became increasingly disillusioned. What have I got here? 
a husband who is a Christian. His uh, father was a pastor for 50 years, and he himself is involved in ministry, but he still doesn't have a heart of hospitality. And she was feeling very lonely. But God had a way to get my attention, and he did that. We don't have time to go into how he did that, but he did. And after about seven or eight years of marriage, all of a sudden, things began to change, and I began to catch a vision for hospitality. You see, without a vision, the people perish. Without a vision, a man perishes. Without a vision, a woman perishes. A home perishes. The congregation perishes, and so on. And so God began to give me a vision for hospitality, and then I began to teach on it. And I was uh, the leader in a group, uh, a fairly large uh, Sunday school class within a very large and fast-growing church. And it was like a church within a church. And when I began to teach on hospitality, it ended up being, I think it was a 13-week series. Things began to change dramatically. In fact, that class began to grow and began to grow and began to grow. And people were becoming more and more hospitable. They weren't so much concerned about themselves as they were concerned about reaching others, touching others, not in a phony evangelistic kind of a way, not artificially, but in reality. So great was the growth that the church and its leadership began to see, wow, um, we're going to have to take a hold of some of this. And so they took away quite a few of our leaders and left us having to start all over again. Now what are we going to do? But the same thing happened. We began to grow and grow and grow. And then they did the same thing again and took some more of our leaders. And we said, Lord, what are we going to do now? I said, help us to see what you see in the people that are left. And he did. And we continue to teach and practice holy hospitality. So great was the impact that people actually begged for us to write this book. Begged for us to write this book. The Power of Hospitality. It is a life-changing, marriage-changing, family-changing, church-changing, city-changing, nation-changing book because we're all strangers here and crowded loneliness is frightening and it's almost inescapable in our, in our modern world. Men, women, young people are fleeing isolation, even strangerhood in their own homes to workplaces in the malls, at least in the mall, we have this sense of a remote yet almost perverted sense of togetherness. Even our church buildings are now being designed like malls, breeding grounds for artificial relationships. It's like we belong to the club of strangers yearning desperately for fellowship. And God isn't happy with that. George Barna, a number of years ago, in his book Virtual America, revealed some astounding statistics and they should break your heart. Maybe they will reveal your heart. At that time, this was over 20 years ago, he said 55% of all non-Christian Americans believe it's getting harder and harder to make lasting friendships. 
But 62% of born-again Christians claimed it was getting hard to make lasting friendships, and 73% of all evangelical Christians said they were finding it difficult to make real friends. So the interesting thing about it, you could form the conclusion that the more religion, the less relationship. So something seemed to be desperately wrong. Don't you agree? So it's like we're divided and in a state of dissolution and individualism reigns supreme. So let's talk a little bit about this matter of individualism. We need to understand the context in which this separation and loneliness has been created, especially here in America. Now we know that America grew and prospered after the revolution for independence. It kind of fueled the spirit of liberty. And uh, the problem is that there was something else that grew in the midst of that revolution and the reveling in liberty. The word independence took on kind of a new meaning. It was no longer seeking freedom from political oppression, but independence began to claim freedom from personal responsibility to our fellow citizens. In other words, it was all about me. It was kind of a mutant form of independence that spread rapidly across the land. It went to seed and mutated again and produced a wayward child called individualism. Would you like to know where that term came from? You'd be surprised, and you're about to hear. Many people were noting that Americans were fiercely independent. But it was really individualism that had taken hold. It was kind of a a new right to be my own man, to do it my way, without regard to others. Kind of like uh, Frank Sinatra was, I'll do it my way. So that became kind of the the, uh, informal national anthem for America and Americans. Well, there was a secular sociologist, I'll call him a sociologist and political observer, Alexis de Tocqueville, who came over to these shores from France and America in 1830, to try to discover what made America great. And we know a number of the quotes from his book, Democracy in America. America's great because America's good. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. That's one of them. But what most people do not know is that he saw lurking in the shadows of America's prosperity a dangerous, what he called, habit of our hearts. And to describe that habit of the hearts, he coined a new word, individualism. He warned in democracy in America that unless this twisted form of liberty were brought under control, it would jeopardize the very future of the republic and destroy her. So, in 1985... Sociologist Robert Bella... In fact, I think there were six or seven of them from uh, Cal Berkeley wrote a book called Habits of the Heart, taking those words directly from Alexis de Tocqueville in his book, Democracy in America. And they were discussing Tocqueville's observations at length, describing this habit of the heart. And I want to share this with you. It's just very brief. Individualism is a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows 
and withdraw into the circle of family and friends, and with this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. So we become alienated from the whole. So, in their book, The Day America Told the Truth, advertising executives uh, Patterson and Kim talked about this cult of individualism. Here's what they said. Americans are disengaging their personal futures from our national destiny. Most Americans think that their own futures will be fine and dandy. They have become so alienated from the whole that they think they will be individually immune from the fate that they believe will befall the nation as a whole. Wow. Talk about a diagnosis. That's not just a political diagnosis or a sociological diagnosis. That is a spiritual diagnosis. In fact, it's what you might call raw selfishness. And what's the remedy? That's what we want to focus on for the balance of the program here today. We have diagnosed the condition. We have established and proved uh, what the condition is. And now we need to provide the remedy. Do you remember when God called a fellow by the name of Abraham to leave his household, to leave his father's house, and to go uh, to a place that God would show him that ultimately became referred to as the promised land? Well, God made a promise to Abraham, a covenant. And he said, look, You are going to, through you and your family, will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Not only that, he said, you are going to be blessed to be a blessing. I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. Now, Abraham was a sojourner, and yet he was to be a blessing. And this is a command. This is an expectation that God has for you and for me. Would you like to find out a little bit more how to implement it in your life? We'll be back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. In one sense, you could say that many of us are in the congregation, but not of it. God said we were, to, we're going to be in the world, but not of it. But many of us are in the congregation, but not of it. 
and loneliness is breaking his heart. There's a crisis of loneliness, and it's not just in the world. It's in the church. You've heard the phrase, he died of a broken heart. It's a phrase often heard, but kind of difficult to grasp the mechanism of how that can occur. But if a man can die of a broken heart, how about a family, a church, or even a whole nation? Do you know that doctors have confirmed that a person can actually die of a broken heart? In fact, James Lynch, in his book, The Broken Heart, The Medical Consequences of Loneliness, says the price we are paying for our failure to understand our biological needs for love and human companionship may be ultimately exacted in our own hearts and blood vessels. According to studies at both the University of California and the University of Michigan, adults who do not belong to nurturing groups or relationships have a death rate twice as high as those with frequent caring contact. Hmm. Maybe God knew something when he commanded us to hospitality. But what is hospitality? Well, hospitality is actually God's, what should we say, affirmative action tool. There's only one word that I know of in the Bible that we are said to use. One thing in the Bible that we are said to use, and that is hospitality. We find that in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, and it's in the context of the end times. He says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore use hospitality. It's something to be used, but what is it? It's not teacup stuff. It's not entertaining. Hospitality is not entertaining. It's something else, something more more tangible, something more heart-connecting. In fact, the reality is that hospitality begins in the heart and finds its manifestation then through our hands and through our homes. But you know what most people try to do? In fact, pastors do this. They say, oh, okay, well, we need to have hospitality. So they try to set up an artificial system They institutionalize it and organizationalize it. And so it starts with the hand, with the home. But it never seems to emanate from the heart. And if it doesn't emanate from the heart, it's phony. It's synthetic. It's synthetic authenticity. And it leaves us empty. So hospitality is at the heart of agape love. This is the unselfish love that God calls us to. It's what you might call the activating disposition of our hearts and our minds that translates agape love into practical language that's understandable by everybody. A man, a woman, a child, it doesn't matter. It doesn't require any further explanation. It's understood with the mind, yet communicates to the heart. It speaks for itself. In fact, there was a Jewish rabbi who said made an amazing statement. He said, hospitality is the language of the heart of God. He says, hospitality in the fullness meaning of that word is as close as we will ever get to the face of God. Think about that. So it must be part of a course requirement in Christianity 101. 
Again, we're told to use hospitality with one another. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. So, let's just think out loud about this for a bit. What does God say about this in the New Testament, other than what Peter said? Well, if you were to go to the book of Titus, where the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, the prerequisites to spiritual oversight or leadership in the body of Christ. And it's not just talking about pastors. It's talking about any kind of leadership. And the reality is every man is a leader in the body of Christ because he is the head of a family. And every woman, a mother in a family. So in a sense, this is an aspiration for a command for every single person who professes to be a follower of Christ. And here's what Paul said to Titus. You must be a lover of hospitality. You must be a lover of hospitality. Not somebody who does it begrudgingly, but a lover. In other words, it has to be part of your life, part of your lifestyle, part of your way of thinking, part of what it means to be a Christian. And then Paul was talking to his ministry sidekick, Timothy. And uh, again, he was talking about what it means to be an overseer or a bishop or a, uh, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe a pastor, maybe a uh, choir director, whatever. He says, look, you must first be given to hospitality. The Bible does not say that hospitality is a gift I have. It's a gift I give. We are to be given to hospitality or give ourselves to it. In other words, it's an act of obedience by faith. It has nothing to do with whether or not you feel like it. It has nothing whatsoever to do with whether or not you think you have uh, the kind of personality that uh, fits well. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with whether or not you're born again, whether or not you're truly a follower of Jesus Christ. And we'll see why in a few moments. But it didn't end there. If you were to go to Romans chapter 12, you would find a listing starting about verse, uh, oh, maybe eight or so, a listing of all of the primary characteristics of the Christian life for all of us. This is not for leaders. This is for all of us. And he says, among those, you must be given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. So not only is hospitality at the heart of all legitimate leadership in the body of Christ, it's at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And if we're not living a hospitable life, if we really don't see things that way, then we're actually, well, kind of not identifying with Jesus himself and not identifying with the Father. And therefore, how could people possibly see that we're identified with the Father and with Christ when we ourselves don't buy into the very heart of God. 
Have you ever thought of what the gospel really is? If you were to distill the gospel in practical terms, what would it be? Well, the word gospel means good news, right? Well, here's what the gospel is in practical terms as related to this subject. The Bible says that you and I were all strangers from the commonwealth of faith. So we're all strangers here. Unless we are born again in Christ and have a new family that is in Christ, we are definitely strangers. Isolated. So God saw in his mercy and in his compassion that we were strangers from the commonwealth of faith. So with his great heart of hospitality in the fullness of time, he extended his hand of hospitality and sent forth his only begotten son full of grace and truth to give us a message. So he extended his, first of all, it began in the heart of the father Then he extended his hand because it was in his heart. And then he opened his home. And here's what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you might be also. In other words, he extended a welcome into his home. So, Hospitality begins in the heart, is extended from the heart through the hand, and into an open home. That's the power of hospitality. It's very simple, and it's at the very heart of the gospel, and that's why the Scripture tells us very openly from the Old Testament and the New Testament that hospitality is at the very heart of the gospel And that's why that rabbi could say, even though he doesn't understand the gospel per se, he could say hospitality is as close as you'll ever get to the face of God. This is a big deal, a really big deal. If we truly believe that we're on the near edge of the second coming, because as the Apostle Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, use hospitality. Now, obviously we can't get into the whole thing right here, and so I want to make available to you our book called The Power of Hospitality. God's plan for you includes hospitality. It really does. And hospitality connects our hearts with God's heart, yet something dramatic has happened in our hearts that have closed the doors of our homes causing Christianity today even to ask whatever happened to hospitality. This is a $16 book. In fact, by today's standards, this would be an $18 to $20 book. But it's a $16 book, yours for $15. It's on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. It's personal, and it's practical, and it's even prophetic even prophetic. Again, it's on the website, $15. We'll put it in your hands. This will transform your own heart, your own life as to what it truly means 
to be a Christian. It will transform your home, your marriage, because the reality is husbands and wives are virtually estranged from one another in our busy, busy, hurry-up world. Parents are estranged from their kids. The kids are estranged from their parents. This is a home healing message. This is a church healing message. Forget about church growth for the moment. That's an ulterior motive. God says he would build his church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. You make disciples. Today we're making disciples by talking about this power of hospitality. Don't try to use this to build a church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. You be obedient and do what I asked you to do. Again, it's on our website, saveus.org, saveus.org. Give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Or give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Now, before we uh, wrap up here, I want to... uh, Again, remind you that this ministry continues and exists by virtue of the donations, the gifts that God's people are inspired to give. We don't have any advertising because advertising actually puts restrictions on what you can say or don't say. The advertisers basically have you over a a dollar bill or over a barrel. No, we're reliant totally upon God moving in the minds and hearts of his people. I hope that you will take that seriously and become a giver, become a partner with us. Go to our website, saveus.org, make your generous gift that way. Call us 1-800-SAVE-USA, write to us. But make sure you get a copy of the book, The Power of Hospitality, and then be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. God blessing be upon you. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.